Hi everyone, welcome to Horn of Africa Leftist Podcast. And today we have a special guest uh, with me. Uh, pretty much the focus of the podcast will be small, obviously. Uh, you know, the emphasis right now in the Horn of Africa is the latest development in Ethiopia. And, um, you know, the story of Somalia and its struggle and internal struggle. Uh, you know, there's a lot of aggression against Somalia over the years. Even to this year uh, has not been overly covered by leftist media. And with this episode, we'll try to dive deep or try to give an emphasis on Somalia while, you know, Ethiopia is the leading storyline and headline grabbing news, but Somalia is a player, an important player that is pretty much disregarded, ignored uh, by white and black left media, which is, which is understandable. But at the same time, you know, we really have to get an insight into Somalia. You know, there's various uh, Somalia voices, uh, intellectuals uh, to give uh, account of what's happening. And with me today is uh, Mohammed from uh, Halgan Media. He's a free freelance journalist, you know, he's of a Somali background and, you know, for us to have a proper understanding of Somalia and just give a different perspective from uh, different voices, uh, you know, within the Somali community, uh, it'd be great for uh, us to have this conversation. So welcome, Mohammed. I really appreciate you coming on uh, to record this episode. Thank you, Philmon. I appreciate the opportunity and getting invited on your podcast to discuss more regarding Somalia. So I do, once again, I do appreciate it and thank you. Yeah, no problem. You know, over the years, uh, you know, I, I follow your work on, you know, on social media. Uh, and it's uh, it's quite unique. Like I mentioned, I think the the focus on you know the Africom drone operation, uh, all these military efforts uh, targeting Somalia. Uh, you know the coverage that you give is kind of unique that uh, I haven't seen anywhere else. Uh, I mean, there's other Somalia journalists who do cover uh, this issue, but you you have a different uh, spin to it. Uh, you know, so I, I think people should uh, follow your work as well. So yeah, I mean, uh, I think before we start, how do you feel by you know there is an issue of the left does have a Somalia problem and it tends to distance itself or ignore or just take for granted all the violence and aggression against the Somalia. And small, the narrative of Somalia gets into this stereotypical African story where chaos, uh, anarchy, and it, therefore that stereotype, that writing and assumption is always like left. But there's an interesting story and dynamic about Somalia that is unique. Uh, you know, it's anti-colonial history. Uh, you know, there's various factions locally, internally that um, have waged uh, an effort to reassert their, uh, you know, independence locally. Uh, so even like uh, oppose invasion by the Washington-backed TPLF. Uh, so Somalia has rich history of resistance of against imperialism uh you know there's quite uh voices in the somali community who are critical about uh these aggression by what different external uh, actors so i mean i think before we get to the modern issue i think uh for people who are not familiar with the rich anti-colonial history and the anti-colonial resistance against the british uh by the somalia Somali uh, fighters, you know, Mohammed. Maybe you can give us your take on, you know, can you explain the uh, your take on the anti-colonial history of Somalis against uh, various colonial powers on how that shaped Somali nationalism from then to now? Thank you, Philmon. Uh, I would say Somalis and their anti-colonial history stretches back centuries. Um, and if you look at Somalis, I mean, they're uh, they're spread out across the Horn of Africa today. It's into uh, more about they're spread out across what three or four modern states but back then what you had was Somalis had their own I would say empires and dynasties and this is a part of history that's that's obviously uh, looked over a lot you know so what they did is I mean their anti-colonial history when they had these empires and dy dynasties there were the times when they were in war oftentimes it might be they would fight just say Abyssinian Empire or other times they might fight
white Europeans, but this shaped Somalis in a way that brought them closer together, you know? So I would say it just uh, strengthened the bond that Somalis had throughout time. And as the European presence in Africa grew stronger and expanded and also led to the, in the long run, the partition of the Somalis, I think that just shaped the Somali ideology more in favor of that pan-Somali ideology. So I think that would be like a rough breakdown to look at Somali uh, anti-colonial history over probably the last few centuries as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that's a great breakdown. Um, I, I think you mentioned pan-Somali, which is really an interesting perspective because uh, you mentioned Somalis, you know, beyond Somalia, there is Somali population inside Ethiopia, Somali population in Djibouti and Kenya. Uh, given this reality, um, how do you view pan-Somali and, uh, you know, given the nation state formation of the Horn of Africa because of colonialism and various factors, you know, sometimes pan-Somali is looked at as negatively, is take, you know, irredentist, or uh, trying trying to acquire land from Ethiopia, uh, Kenya. Can you give your perspective on why Pan Somali is negatively looked down on by outside observers? Well, I think uh, from outsiders, I think it's looked at negatively because they simply don't understand and can't relate. You know, I mean Somalis. I mean, if you look at the first partition of the Somali Peninsula, which is in uh, 1948, that's when the Ogaden region was given to Ethiopia. The first phase. That's also the same year. Uh, Kashmir was giving to India. So my point of bringing up that comparison is that this is a colonial question with Somalis and their pan-Somali ideology. You know, to unify Somalis across the horn is pretty much unifying brothers. And that's how Somalis always look at it. And Somalis do still support and believe in that ideology. But at the moment, it's not realistic since the collapse of the state in the early 90s. And with that being said, I think the negative aspect comes from, I mean, the pan-Somali ideology is an existential threat to many countries. If the pan-Somali ideology were actually to be implemented and succeed, I mean, Ethiopia as a state would not exist. Kenya as a state would not exist. And even a coastal nation like Djibouti would cease to exist. So there is a lot of fear from that. And then it would also tip the balance of power and the horn in favor of Somalis. And a lot of people are scared of that. A lot of people simply don't want that, whether it be for geopolitics, uh, territorial reasons, uh, and you name it. There's just so many uh, things that will come with it, you know, that that uh, is the reason why so many people would be against it, you know? And it's also the reason why I think, uh, Somalia hasn't really, a lot of, particularly neighboring states have put in a lot of effort to maintain anarchy or just prevent Somalia from really getting back on its feet or, you know, asserting its authority over its country, you know, because once you get a stable Somalia, I mean, Somalis tend to have a, I would say, a natural, uh, how should I say, like a, a natural train of thought to go looking for their missing land, you know, and I think neighboring states are well aware that that's why there's so much emphasis and effort put in by neighboring states to weak in Somalia. So that that's how I would say. That's, that's just how I look at it, to be honest. Solid points. I mean, we're going to dive deep uh, later on to uh, Ogaden, but I think uh, you mentioned Ogaden. I think for people who are not familiar, um, Ogaden is inside uh, the Somali region inside Ethiopia, which was uh, acquired uh, uh, with the assistance of the British uh, as a gift to Hala Selassie, the Abyssinian feudal king. Uh, so the, the question of the Ogaden and the Somali region inside Ethiopia is really unique uh, uh, and this time as well. But 
Do you feel the British role then and now as far as, uh, you know, the partition of the Somali region and then giving it to, uh, Haile Selassie in addition to, uh, you know, the uh, design around Somali land, even the French role with Djibouti, you know, I think, how do you feel about the role of the, the French and the British rulers to make sure, like I mentioned, I think this idea of a unified Somalia is, uh, is dangerous for the, all the nation state, but I think is, is by design, it feels like it's a threat to the original um, uh, imperial colonial powers, the French and the, the British efforts to weaken Somali resistance. How, how do you feel about the the, the French and the, the British, especially Djibouti and also Somaliland? Well, I think the arrival of the Europeans, particularly the British, uh, I think paved the way for probably one of the worst calamity, calamities to befall Somalis in the Horn. I mean, because the British are responsible for partitioning Somalia in three phases, 1948 and 1954 was the Ogaden region. And then later in 1963 was NFD. So, I mean, I think, and, and you have to understand during that period, all that really took place was a British person who aligned through the middle of the map and said, Ethiopia, take this, Kenya, take that. And as a result, those Somalis on the other side of that border, you know, or the other side of that line have faced, you know, horrific suffering as a result. You know, it's been 70 years since the partition and they fell victim to persecution, massacres, all sorts of hor horrific things, you know. And that is all a result of British colonialism, you know. So I, I, I do get angered by that because, I mean, it, it's like when you look at uh, uh, so much of the evils plaguing Somali society today or Somalis in the horn, it often has its roots in the colonial partition that took place 60, 70 years ago, you know. So, I mean, I do think Britain has been a, always had a detrimental role in the Horn of Africa in the eyes of Somalis. And even so today, because, I mean, the Brits have uh, pretty much... They like un they've unofficially recognized the northern region as a uh, Somaliland. It's like a separatist enclave, and what they're doing is they're not officially recognizing it, but they're just maintaining the status quo. You know, they're just egging on the secessionist ambitions. And I mean, Britain has its own policies, but when you look at their policies in the Horn, it's aimed at weakening Somalia. It's aimed at another partition of Somalia via Somaliland. So I always look at Britain's role in the Horn of Africa, particularly when it comes to Somalis, in a bad light. You know. And then when I look at Djibouti, I mean, particularly the French role, I kind of feel like Djibouti. I mean, I, I mean, I'm happy they got their own independent nation. They're Somalis, great, you know. But at the same time, I support unity, and I think they would have been better off with Somalia, despite all the chaos. And there's nothing better than unity. That's my opinion. But I think the Djibouti was denied, a, I would say, like a referendum and not allowed to actually the right because they weren't really given the right to self determination, in my opinion. You know, Djibouti was made a country for a reason. France wanted to maintain a presence on that crucial was it the Reds three uh Bob Al Mundum Strait. So I think mm -hmm. French geopolitics, you know, overshadowed uh the ambitions of former French Somaliland known as Djibouti. So I think the European powers and their presence in the Horn of Africa overall was just detrimental, at least from a Somali perspective, because the effects are still being felt as of today. Solid points again. Um I think comparing uh, you mentioned Djibouti, uh, you know, I maybe you can correct me on this, but I did see a I think it was a social media post about different, uh, you know, the 60s and the 1950s and 40s, which is a golden era for uh, just the Horn of Africa and the elders attempting to unify the region in different ways. Uh, one of the, uh, I forgot their name exactly, isn't it? Djibouti-born uh, intellectual or uh, organizer that were aiming to unify uh, the uh, Djibouti, you know, and Somalia and that that perspective of the pan-Somali, uh, you know. So how do you feel that, like, 
the elders of the 60s and the the previous generation efforts to you know promote this uh pan somali and then also like well i think to extend that question you know how do you feel about the you know i know that uh you know uh si bar the the previous uh leader before 1991 uh there was a phase i guess during the 1970s towards socialism or and rhetoric or in action i guess but you know i know that there within the somali community there's uh various views about him uh without antagonizing our brothers and sisters within the somali community who view him differently but how do you view that generation and also the continuation of what ha- actually occurred with somalia under the siad burr and the uh, you know the rhetoric about socialism uh and that history and toward you know toward a unified uh effort uh you know to bring in ogaden bring in uh the people in djibouti um how do you feel about that elder generation, their efforts and the organization or the various intellectuals of that uh, era? Well, I think that era was different from now because, I mean, if you look at that era, I mean, in the 60s and 70s, everybody was fresh out of colonialism. You know what I mean? And But not really everybody was free. You would have Somali families that were free inside the republic. Then you would have Somali families that were occupied inside NFD or Djibouti or Ogaden or wherever it may be. So I think uh, I think because I think the '60s and '70s was probably in the eyes of Somalis the early years of the post-colonial state, you know, and Somalis weren't satisfied with the status quo of their borders because they knew a lot of their family members were still on the other side of being persecuted and occupied and things like that, and that's what pushed the uh, you know the pan-Somali ideology even more, in my opinion. But it then uh, when Siadbari took power, it intensified, you know, I, I, it just skyrocketed and flared up you know and it hit its height or it's uh yeah it hit the climax i would say during that 1977 war you know and uh yeah and i think even since that 1977 war even though the outcome didn't you know wasn't in somalia's favor as a result of the soviet and cuban intervention i still believe that uh ideology is still alive even as of today it's been 30 years from the collapse of the state but i think it's still alive that ideology that pan-somali ideology but the problem is the state collapsed so with the collapse of the state and not a functioning government, Somalis in general know it's not realistic as of today. But if you were able to allow Somalis to reconcile amongst themselves, determine the fate of the nation as they deem fit, slowly but surely, once you reconstruct and rebuild the Somali state, then the questions will come that of self-determination for their brethren in the other side of those uh, colonial borders. So I just think Somalis are just facing, uh, I mean, they're stateless at the moment. If you look at the borders of the mainland, Somali Republic. So if the Somalis are stateless in the mainland or not having a functioning government, that pan-Somali ideology is not going to be realistic for many people. But it's still in the hearts and minds of millions of Somalis because, I mean, everybody has stories from that era, you know, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s when it was popping, you know. But nowadays, I mean, Somalis are just, you know, it's too many problems in Somalia, too much political dysfunction. And even the mainland Somalia itself is not really sovereign at the moment, you know. So if your nation is not sovereign, you can't really uh what's it called think or aspire to for greater somalia you know you need to fix the mainland first but mm-hmm. like i mean but the only thing i would say the previous generation that you mentioned from that 60s 70s era and today i would say they still have that ideology and they still share that same aspiration but the scenarios or the circumstances are just simply different during that period you know it was the post-colonial era you had a state a functioning state you know but today mm-hmm. i mean you don't have that functioning state you know so that's a determinant to the uh what's it called the aspirations for a greater somalia which and unfortunately even benefits neighboring states so i mean that, that's how i put it to be honest 
honest. Solid points. I mean, uh, you mentioned Ogden in the, you know, the historic moment of 1977 or 78. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, this is when the uh, Soviet Union and also in addition to uh, Cuba were supporting the pseudo-Marxist Derg regime to uh, pretty much, uh, you know, push back on the resistance inside the Somali region. And at the same time, the Somali state, which was, uh, to be, you know, to be honest, uh, Somalia at that time was very a powerhouse. It was a powerhouse. Uh, it was a very strong military. And um, it was something that uh, people view as a threat when it was unifying under uh, stronger nationalism. Uh, there were some somewhat of a socialist socialist forever there. But 1978 and 77 was a historic moment in that I, I think there is uh, many people or intellectuals who speak about how 1977 to 78, uh, you know, d- despite the mistake and the uh, horrific mistake of the Cuban support, which, uh, you know, elsewhere they've done a good job supporting African struggle has led to, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure they regret it right now, but they, they supporting, uh, the, uh, you know, USSR and the, uh, you know, the Fidel Castro supporting the Mingus to Hylomerium invasion or occupation and the military effort to counter Somalia to unify uh, with the, their brothers and sisters in the Somalia region inside Ethiopia uh, caused ripple effect. Uh, would you say that was a historic moment of the defeat, uh, you know, by of Somalia by the USSR backed uh, Ethiopia uh, regime under Halasala, I mean uh, Mengistu. Um, you know that that was a historic moment. But I would just want to understand your take about seventy eight and seventy seven and the military defeat of Somalia, which has really caused an issue. And like you mentioned, it causes an issue to uh, the state is weakened, and then ten years later, it became, uh, causes it a collapse. But it wasn't overnight, right? It just did not happen overnight. It's a couple years. But the nineteen seventy eight seventy seven was shocking to Somali nationalism, shocking to, uh, you know, the pan-Somali views, but how, how do you view it? Well, I mean, I think of it like Somalia had to be stopped. I mean, and that's the reason why you had, you know, for instance, the Soviets, the Cubans, Poland, East Germany, Libya, North Yemen, all of these countries come to Ethiopia's rescue, you know? Somalia had to be stopped because if Somalia, I mean, would have succeeded in taking that Ogaden like they were doing at the time, it would have set a, I would say, like a chain reaction or a domino effect, you know, mm-hmm. because Africa as a whole, it's made up on fake borders, these colonial borders, you know, ethnic groups uh, live on different sides of the border in different countries, different nation states. So if Somalia would actually have succeeded in annexing the Ogaden, obviously it would have led to the collapse of Ethiopia and a lot of other uh, communities at that time that were occupied by Ethiopia, such as Eritrea or some that are still occupied today, such as Oromia or Gambela and so forth, they would have automatically got their liberation, but it would have caused more problems in the Horn. And not from my perspective, but from an outside perspective, from these global powers, because no one really wants the borders or the status quo in Africa to change. So I think this is why the Soviet Union put so much effort into it, you know, to save uh, Mengistu and his regime. But and then, yeah, so I think I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So like, how do you view like the, uh, you know, initially there was support by the USSR for Somalia and then China even. There's even engagement with the North Koreans. Um, How do you view that period where Somalia was actually a huge uh, player uh, with regards to the Eastern Bloc or, uh, you know, the Communist Bloc as well? But how do you view that period where there was initial support and then, you know, know, uh, we saw what happened afterwards in their support of uh, Mengistu? Yeah, I think... uh 
I think they support. I think the Soviets were super like, cool with like Mengistu and Siad, but when things hit the fan, they sided with Mengistu. And I think because a lot of people, I think more so instead of geopolitics, I think it more has to do with religion. A lot of people don't like to touch upon this subject, but it's just my opinion. You know, if you look at the Soviet Union, particularly Russia, it has probably like the largest Orthodox population, and outside of Russia, Ethiopia has the largest Orthodox population. So, and if you look at the archives from in the classified files from that days, senior Soviet officials knew that hey they weren't there was no interest in actually saving Ethiopia in this situation but the Russian political elite I mean excuse me the Soviet politically pushed for the intervention to back Mengistu you know so I always feel like it's religion always plays a big role in international politics this is what happened in the 77 war and it's actually unfolding even as of today so I think Somalia whether they like it or not the Soviets would have sided with Mengistu anyway you know it was never really about leftists or because if it was really about leftists and anti imperialism you would not support ethiopia over somalia you know a colonial state over a nation which in this case is somalia fighting to liberate its occupied territory so i mean it's it's it's, it's a really it was a really hectic period but then there's multiple things that unfolded from the, during that era you know and i think somalia was given the short end of the stick mm -hmm. uh yeah that's my opinion honestly Cool. I mean, to, to switch to, I mean, great that you mentioned the, you know, the important, the, fa the factor of religion. Um, I think, uh, to, to focus on that, uh, since the, uh, the collapse of Somalia, or I, I don't even want to say collapse because it was just the targeting and the stabilization of the state itself. But, uh, I guess we have to use that term because it gets thrown out a lot. Uh, that period of 1991 or even before that, um, it seemed like there was a deliberate effort to target Somali nationalism. Uh, and one of the, one of the ways, I guess, external influencers, uh, you know, um, Saudi Arabia and their sponsorship of different, uh, sects aligns Somalia as a counter against Somali nationalism that is pretty much aligned with egalitarian or socialist Islam tendencies. How do you feel about the role of Saudi Arabia from the eighties to nineties or even, even other, uh, Arab, uh, states regionally? And, you know, how do you how do you uh, compare that to the, the role of Somali nationalism? Well, I mean, I think in my opinion, the role that the Saudis or any of these Gulf monarchies played in Somalia during the 80s was very limited, you know, in regards to influencing people on the ground, you know, because even during the even during the later years in the 80s, when the Siadvar government was, you know, weakening a lot, of, the government still had a grip over opposition. They still had a grip over certain influences in the country. So I don't believe their influence really had as the Saudis had any influence in the 80s. But then when you look at uh, the developments uh, after the government failed in 91 and what happened onwards, mm, I think the Saudi role is kind of overhyped. That's my opinion. Because when you look at the Saudi role in Somalia or other, you know, Muslim countries that are plagued by conflict, it's always, they always say things like, oh, the Wahhabis this and the Wahhabis that, and it's leading to extremism. They're funding schools. And, but in Somalia's case, I, I, I don't disagree with that narrative, to be honest. You know, I mean, the Saudis are more influential as of today because of the current politics in the country and they're, you know, they're buying off politicians. And the same goes for their other Gulf monarchies. But when you look at the Saudis or extremism or anything like that in Somalia, I would say it's more of a result of failed U.S. foreign policy that mm -hmm. that gave birth to militancy and extremism in Somalia than more so Saudi doing this or that. That's just my opinion, you know, because I'm not a fan of Saudi Arabia. But then when, when you look at the influence that a lot of these extremist groups might have in a place like Somalia, I think the Saudis are overstated uh, on their role in it. You know, that's from my personal experience and how I see things. 
I mean, uh, besides the Saudis, uh, right now, it doesn't seem like they're the most active one. Um, do you feel, I think it's Qatar or UAE, their main competition that are, uh, you know, influencing Somali politics and uh, uh, efforts. But what do you think is has a more powerful influence uh, between UAE or Qatar? I know that's very controversial right now because there's different factions, different camps of Somalia who sides with either one. So how do you view the, the competition uh, and its influence? To be honest, when it comes to the Gulf monarchies, yeah, Saudi's not really up there. It's usually the UAE or Qatar. Qatar's aligned with the current ruling government of Fermajo, while the UAE is supporting a lot of these opposition candidates. But I really don't see the difference between the two because I think it's a misconception to say Qatar is, you know, they have problems with the UAE. UAE has problems with Qatar. In my eyes, as a Somali, I view them both as hostile, as detrimental to the state and the country as a whole, you know. And at the same time, they're all proxies of the West, whether it be the U.S. or Britain, you know. So, I mean, I feel like that when you look at Qatari and UAE policies, it's an extension of U.S. and British policies towards Somalia. So that's how I would look at it. Yeah, I mean, like since we're going down the timeline, we focus on the 90s and the, the importance of religion in this conversation. But I kind of want to hear your view on um, how do you how should we view Turkish influence, which, to be honest, looking at Turkish influence uh, compared to the Arab uh, elements or uh, client state or different uh, external regional. I'm not trying to give credit to Erdogan or anything, but the Turkish involvement in Somalia is very good as as far as soft power, uh, giving aid, development to aid compared to other entities. Uh, um, you know, it seemed like this uh, Turkish is very, very, very popular with Somalis uh, as far as soft power and the, the critique of it is kind of limited because of the soft power and how much influence the Turkish have had over the last 10 years. It seemed like the Turkish were the first uh, to enter Somalia and make a huge bet by, you know, giving aid, developmental support, uh, supporting a str- somewhat of an attempt at a centralized state. But how do you view the interests of Turkey, uh, you know, you know, as somebody that's uh, a NATO member, uh, you know, its presence in Somalia, should some people look at it very uh, concerned and very critical and some people are welcoming of it. How do you view it yourself? Honestly, I'm kind of 50-50 on it. I mean, I like their soft power. They, I mean, when you look at the development and the aid in the country, they've done things that a lot of these Western governments and institutions haven't, you know, build schools and hospital roads and they give a lot of, they give thousands of students scholarships every year, you know what I'm saying? So they do a lot of great things along with helping build the army and things but i mean everybody has their own interest you know what i mean so and and like you said turkey is a nato power you know like uh the just like the u.s or britain but they probably have different interests in somalia just like uh i mean for example if you look at a place like syria a lot of nato powers are involved in that war but everybody has different interests in somalia a lot of nato powers are involved but they all have different interests so turkey there's a lot of benefit but there's a lot of detriment also uh i would say i mean i mean if you look at it right now what turkey's doing is they're backing the current uh, government of led by Formaggio. That government itself doesn't have any domestic legitimacy, yet the Turkish government is sending weapons and arms and financial funding and all that to the government. And this is, a, this is like I said, it doesn't have any domestic legitimacy. So in the eyes of the public, Turkey's backing a, you know, unelected government or a government who's out of mandate, you know, who's being opposed by everybody. So I think that puts a, you know, a smudge on Turkey's image in Somalia, you know. 
But at the same time, I mean, I mean, like I said earlier, they did do a lot, but it comes with a lot of exploitation. I mean, Turkey right now, I they rebuilt the port of Mogadishu and they rebuilt the airport in Mogadishu. If you look at the port of Mogadishu, I think Turkish, there's a Turkish company, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but they collect 50% of the revenue from the port of Mogadishu for the next 20 years as a result mm. of building that uh, airport, wow. I mean that seaport or whatever, they will collect revenue for the next two decades, 50%, you know, because just because they're building it. And I mean, I do believe they should collect revenue and they should gain something from it since they built it from scratch, but at the same time i wouldn't put it at 50 percent. it's like these little exploitive things i'm talking about you know there's a lot of benefit from it but at times i kind of feel like the government needs to grow back on and say hey you guys need to cool off you know what i mean this ain't you know somalia is not a free-for-all you know so that's mm-hmm. how i kind of feel like there's a lot of benefit but sometimes turkey little turkey gets a little too comfortable is what i would say I mean, how do you uh, actually, this is something recent that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's like an official, uh, arm drone that, uh, they were shipped out to Somalia. Um, I would, from my understanding, or you can correct me on this, that the, the, the drones that the Turkish have sent, uh, or allegedly have sent, uh, it's more for, um, I guess monitoring and not just active weapons. Uh, you know, you know, we, we realize that Somalia is under sanctions right now, arms embargo, which people just forget and just totally don't. It's just really sad to how the left doesn't try to emphasize that. But, uh, yeah. Somalia is under sanction, and how does it actually impact anything? If uh, uh, Turkey sent uh, these alleged drones, um, how does this impact anything on the ground? Um, yeah, I've seen those reports online. I can't confirm it on my end, but I've seen a lot of like uh, Turkish journalists and media outlets reporting it. The Somali government has expected they're not going to comment on it. But personally, if you ask me, I think it's true because Turkey's been sending uh, what's it called drones into neighboring Ethiopia. They supply other countries across the world as well. So I think they did probably bring them in. But I think that's a bad move. Like I stated earlier, this government doesn't have domestic legitimacy and you're arming them. Whether these be armed drones or surveillance drones, you're still propping up a a, a government that's not legitimate, you know, and the country as itself is on the brink of war, you know, so that's a very bad move for Turkey. And I feel like it's adding fuel to the fire. So, I mean, I think Turkey, if it, it is true, if it is true, I would say Turkey's doing more damage than any good, you know, mm-hmm. so that's what I would say, to be honest. Uh, I mean, you know, I think as uh, we move along from Turkey to from Saudi Arabia, you know, this is a hot topic that people are focused on, uh, you know, the importance or the the role of China and just not in Ethiopia, Eritrea uh, and, and Somalia. Uh, you know, we saw the latest development and efforts by uh, the uh, Washington and London to push uh, the Somalia land uh, card. Uh, you know, we saw a different diplomatic effort or engagement uh, and we saw that how the Taiwan officials have visited Somaliland and there's exchange diplomatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you view the question of Somaliland and the current efforts to instigate tension by London and Washington versus uh, China and using Taiwan in this case? I mean, to understand why uh, the Taiwan role in northern Somalia or known as the Somaliland, I think you have to rewind the clock and look at Somaliland as a whole and what got the country and particularly that region to the point that it's at today, you know? I mean, uh, the what occurred in that you're probably where the 80s there was a rebellion in that part mm-hmm. of the country the government clamped down uh, ferociously to be honest and a lot of civilians died you know and once that particular government was overthrown in 91 the rebels which controlled that area declared independence you know but it hasn't bared any fruits and I think the only way and I, they won't get recognition because it's been 30 years but what happens is that western powers like you said like Washington and London will use Somaliland as a pro- not, not necessarily a proxy but they'll use it as like 
like a Trojan horse to weaken Somalia's statehood and also weaken other influence in the region, like how they're trying to push Somaliland closer ties to Taiwan just to, you know, aggravate China or try to push China out in any way. So I feel like they're being exploited like they've been getting exploited for the last 30 years. And mm-hmm. with that being said, the only way to come, uh, overcome this Somaliland issue is through reconciliation. I mean, Somalis are a society that have been in the state of war for 30, 40 years amongst each other. And the only way to reconcile and move forward is to address the past, speak on past grievances. And that's what reconciliation needs. You know, so I would say reconciliation is what Somalia needs in order to take care of the Somaliland problem. If not, you're going to see the same issue. You're going to see outside powers, you know, using Somalis against Somalis. You're going to see in this case Somaliland being propped up you know in his favor of Taiwan to aggravate China you know so I, I feel like Somaliland more is a I think it's like a card used you know whenever it's, it's like a useful card for the UK and the United States mostly you know against the rest of Somalia and other interests that the U, they, they, they might have in that particular Horn of Africa region. Mm-hmm. I mean besides Somaliland I mean can you give a history about Jubuland and the, the impact of uh, Kenya uh, you know, it's current. The there's always a tension between Somalia and Kenya uh, regarding Kenya efforts to, I guess, uh, take over the water territory of Somalia, which has rich oil. Um, how do you view? By you know, it seems like the British are playing both cards, and they're behind you know Kenya supporting the Jubu land and the Somaliland land thing. I think the British. Uh, that's just my opinion, but you can correct me on this. That they uh, they're they're playing a role to you know to and you know instigate some type of Somali tension. Like you mentioned, all this. Stuff all this issue in just Somaliland, Jubuland can be solved internally with Somalis just recon- by reconciling without the interference of uh, outside powers. You know, mm-hmm. whatever issue there is, um, it can be solved. But can you give us a context of how do you view the Jubuland uh, region and also and the role of Kenya and the British uh, in that history as well? Yeah, I mean, I look at that Jubuland state in Somalia and Kenya. I mean, the current Jubuland state is a proxy of Kenya, and Kenya it's, it, in itself is a proxy of the West. I mean, if you recall when. Uh, in 2006 when that Ethiopian invasion happened the Ethiopian troops were forced to withdraw in 2009 and when that occurred that's when Kenya uh, came up with a proposition to build a buffer zone in southern Somalia particularly in the Juba Valley known as Jubaland today mm-hmm. but they didn't deploy troops in 2009 right away what they did in 2011 is when the Kenyan invasion took place and I think from was it October I think or yeah October 2011 till about September 2012 it took about Kenyan troops about a year to actually push through the Juba Valley and to reach the coastal city of Kismayo. Once they accomplished that, they built a, how it's like a puppet administration or a little satellite state within Somalia, you know, to back and to secure their influence in that part of the country, you know? So mm-hmm. that's how I would look at it. I mean, Kenya, and yeah, and Kenya does have its influ- interest because they want to maintain a pres- uh, presence in Somalia militarily and, you know, like you said, just for like they want to take the sea. They want to do a lot of things like that. But I think Kenya's presence is kind of overhyped in a way. Because Somalia can can easily push Kenya out. If the current Somali government t- simply says, hey, Kenyan troops leave Somalia, that's all you really need to do. But then Somalia is not sovereign. The president is not, it doesn't really have any power. So you can't keep Kenya and Ethiopia, which are hostile states, really at bay. That's why you currently have this Jubaland fiasco and Kenya's influence is in that region, which is a detriment to Somalia's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you mentioned the uh, invasion of uh, uh, by the Ethiopian regime under the TPLF at that time, which is 2006. But before we uh, dive deep into that uh, history and your take, uh, I, can you g- go over, you know, there's always this, uh, it's not 
a claim, but this has been, you know, Michael Parenti has a, a quote on this about the Bush administration uh, support of the invasion of Somalia during the 90s is because of the oil company, a various oil company had like eyes on Somalia and its uh, alleged large oil reserve mm-hmm. and its potential. So how do you make that connection to uh, the Kenyan interest in the maritime b- boundary issue, uh, giving the, you know, the rich uh, untapped resource of Somalia, which is something that's not discussed and overemphasized. Uh, Somalia has really, really, uh, you know, uh, rich resources that, uh, you know, everyone wants. And what's the connection between the invasion of Somalia or the Black Hawk Down moment of the Clinton era and also the connection with the Kenyan wanting this oil uh, or the rich area or the water area that uh, they're seeming to acquire? What is the question of oil in your view? Yeah, I'm actually happy you brought that up because that's like you said, it's often, often overlooked. I mean, it actually began in the 80s during the Siadbar era. What they did is that, uh, they got into contracts with a lot of U.S. based oil companies or oil firms. And a lot of them were based in Texas and had connections to the Bush family during the 80s, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, once, you know, the rebellion kicked off and the government was overthrown in 91, what happened is you had that UN intervention that occurred under the guise of humanitarianism. And then former, uh, George Bush senior, I think a month before he left the White House, he deployed 28,000 U.S. troops to Somalia, which marked America's largest military intervention on the history of the continent, even as of today. And I mean, every if you look at if you go online, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, it was humanitarianism. It was to bring peace mm-hmm. and all of that. But that's simply not true. I think the U.S. intervention in Somalia was spurred by a petroleum interest because, I mean, former President Bush Sr., his uh, family and companies affiliated with him had rights to these oil, com- oil rights in Somalia during the 80s. So when the Civil War popped off in the 90s, U.S. troops were deployed to secure American oil interest, you know, and and most Somalis were aware that that's why I think the U.S. and the U.N. presence in Somalia during the early 90s got a bad reaction from the public and a lot of Somalis resisted, which cultivated into the Black Hawk Down incident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting history. Uh, I mean, the oil question is always uh, in the background, and that's why... I, I think this is just my opinion. Uh, Somalia is targeted heavily because, you know, the efforts to partition it cause, uh, you know, weaken Somali nationalism and, you know, demi- demonize any effort to have a centralized state. But, uh, mo- to move on, I think the, uh, you, you mentioned the invasion, um, the invasion of, uh, Somalia of, uh, in 2006 by the, uh, TPLF, uh, regime under Melissanawi. Can we uh, actually want to actually have your view, uh, you know, giving the history of Melissanawi and the TPLF, uh, Somalia, uh, support <laughs> Supported uh, the TPLF era and then gave uh, refuge to Melissanawi. In addition to supporting the EPLF and various struggle, uh, when Somalia was a powerhouse and it was, uh, you know, that's something the Eritreans remember: the historic role of Somalis in supporting the Eritrean independence struggle and the Eritrean revolution. So something that we cherish, we will never forget. But at the same time, there was, um, you know, the TPLF at the time and Melissanawi uh, uh, was in Mogadishu and getting support uh, by the Somali state uh, for a different reason but um it seemed like the after 1991 the collapse of uh somalia which i don't really like to say but that's the word that people use the collapse of somalia uh the role of uh melissanawi became you know at the forefront he he understood the clan system he understood the various factors and during the 90s it was supporting different warlords to weaken the somali state from ever coming back uh sponsoring different elements and uh and then we saw the invasion of uh, uh somalia in 2006 military invasion when there was efforts to have a centralized 
or a centralized system or some type of entity that will bring all uh, Somalis together. But how do you view uh, the TPLF role during the 90s uh, under Somali, uh, under uh, uh, Zanawi and his, his understanding of Somalia, the clan system exploiting that uh, tension? Uh, I believe he understood Somali too, uh, from what I understand. But uh, I, I just want to understand your perspective. Yeah, I think the era of the Melis and TPLF in Somalia during the 80s and the 90s, I mean, the way I look at it is that Melis, I view him as like an ungrateful child or a man that bit the hand that fed him. And this is a result of the TPLF's, you know, being, I mean, they were exiled out of Ethiopia and they were forced to seek shelter in Somalia where they received, you know, shelter, training and all sorts of things. And with Somalia's support, you know, for the TPLF and EPLF, I mean, Gistu was able to be overthrown, you know, but the only difference is Eritrea, once they got their independence, they didn't stab Somalia in the back like Melis did. And why I think so is because I always viewed Melis and the TPLF. I don't think they were really fighting for self-determination, never, either whether it be the 70s and 80s, because if they were, they would have succeed, uh, separated from Ethiopia in the 90s, but they didn't. Instead, he chose to, you know, pretty much replace Mengistu and take the helms of the empire known as modern-day Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And so with that being said, I feel like Melis's policies towards Somalia, particularly starting the 90s and onwards, was more because, of the, because you know, you have to look at 1991, there was a big change that happened in the Horn of Africa, the geopolitics mm-hmm. change, you know? Prior to 91, it was two states, Somalia and Ethiopia, the main powerhouses going back and forth for control and influence in the Horn. But once 91 occurred, I mean, I mean, Ethiopia was still standing, you know, because I guess the West helped them and whatnot. But Somalia's case was, that wasn't simply the case. So the way I think Melis looked at it is from a geopolitical perspective. He didn't just want to dominate Ethiopia. I kind of feel like the guy wanted to dominate the Horn of Africa as a whole. So he put, he went through extreme lengths to make sure Somalia doesn't get back on its feet. Like you said, arming warlords and different factions, because I mean, this is a guy that he knows that if Somalia did get back on its feet, he would pose an existential threat to him and his empire, Ethiopia and his government and things like that. So I mm-hmm. kind of feel like that's why the man put in so much effort, you know, just for his, because he had to, because if you just left Somalia alone and let Somalis do their own thing, reconcile and get back on their feet, that would oppose mm-hmm. a long-term threat to Ethiopia. And Melis simply wasn't having it, you know. That's how I look at it, you know, in regards to the TPLF support for certain entities in Somalia, whether it be the warlords that later became the regional states. So I think that's how I would look at it. But then if you look at 2006, uh, that's a little different too, because, I mean, in order to understand the invasion in 2006, you have to look at the developments that preceded Somalia prior to that. Uh, in 2001, following 9-11, uh, Somalia had nothing to do with 9-11, but yet in the days and weeks that followed 9-11, the U.S. government, particularly the CIA, began arming and funding warlords in Somalia. You know what I mean? They started funding rival warlord factions, paying them, sending them money. And as a result, thousands of Somalis died during that period between 2001 and 2006. Thousands died and countless more were renditioned and handed over to the CIA. And and they were just brutalizing Somalia. You had these CIA-backed warlords. And then I guess the public got to a point where they said enough is enough and they just took the faith of their nation into their own hands. And that cultivated the Islamic Courts Union known as the ICU into power. So what occurred is the ICU, I mean, they defeated the CIA-backed warlords in Mogadishu, and then within a two- or three-month period, they took over half of Somalia, you know? Literally, within two or three months, they took over half of Somalia, and this in itself was never seen before, you know? And armed Yeah, it, it was a shock, not to cut you in, but it was a, quite a shock, because what kind of power or what, what type of entity would stop the, uh, the warlords 
And it was a, it was it was an effort, and it was we were like, oh my god, this is happening. The Somalia Somalia is coming back because they were crushing the warlords at that time. It was just like shocking. But yeah, continue. So so continue. No, no, you're good. You're good. That's 100 percent true. Because the only reason they were successful against the warlords is because they had public support. Because everybody hated the warlords. Everybody hated America, bro. Because when the CIA started arming and funding these warlords, and as a result, brutalizing Somalis, so the average Somali in Somalia looked at it like, yo, America has unofficially declared war on us because they're arming these bloody warlords. Lords, you know what I mean? That are terrorizing us. We had people being abducted from their homes in the middle of the night and taken to uh, CIA and handed over rendition. Thousands, you know, Quran teachers, mm-hmm. uh, students, you know, elders, everybody. And this was the result of the CIA's destabilization of Somalia. So when yeah. the courts union came on the scene and they took Mogadishu and then within three months they took over half the country, you know, I mean, they had to be stopped because they were a serious threat. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, you took over half of Somalia in, what, in a matter of months and you didn't fire a single shot. You know what I mean? That meaning you were supported by the public. This is a serious threat, you know? And the thing is, the ICU were trying to govern Somalia under Islamic law, known as Sharia. And the Bush administration wasn't having it. They simply weren't having it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think, and that's what led to the invasion and that's what in reality you have uh thousands of ethiopian troops that invaded somalia under the cover of american drones you know so i yeah. mean it was a u.s-led invasion that's how i look at it Melis was used as a proxy but america was the mastermind you know so that that's my perspective on it i mean that's a good connection i mean not to uh, actually just to i, I want to further talk about that but before we do i want to ask you about uh you know how do you feel about uh federalism versus centralized state in somalia and the role of Melis to create the 4-1 clan system and a model, you know, I mean, that I think that becomes more of an issue of what is the perfect model to unify Somalis and, you know, the current effort of having federal uh, uh, arrangement, you know, Somalia is just one uh, one nationality. Uh, you know, I know there's minorities inside Somalia, but for the most part, it's majority one ethnic people. Um, what is the, what does that serve uh, federalism, multi, you know, within Somalia and wh- why can't there be centralized state and the complication of you know the role of Melisnawi to instill these four one clan system how do you how do you view that uh the way i look at it is uh number one federalism is very unpopular with somali this is just facts you know what i mean because mm-hmm. somalia is the most probably i don't know i think it's probably it's probably the most homogeneous nation on africa mm-hmm. if not the world you know so when you implement a federalism like that because you know federalism is good in places like spain switzerland and even ethiopia where you have multiple mm-hmm. ethnic groups but in a place like somalia nah that's not really it's not gonna work you know it weakens the state you know what i mean in the sovereignty of the country and somalis know that you know so mm-hmm. what you have in somalia today is you have well you have a central government in mogadishu and then if you add somaliland to the mix you got like six or seven regional states but they don't really because aside from somaliland and puntland the rest of the, the regional states don't wield any power you know what i mean they don't they barely control a couple towns they can't drive from one town to the next you know what i mean there's it just doesn't exist it only exists by name you know and I feel like it's it's used, you know, to weaken Somalia because no one wants to see a central state arise in Somalia, even though every Somali wants it, you know. Mm-hmm. But in regards to Melis's role behind this, I think the guy is giving too much credit, you know. I mean, no matter how much I dislike Melis and the TPLF, I feel like the guy is giving too much credit because this, if you look at the current federal structure in Somalia, that idea was, uh, a, I mean, it was implemented or it was made, that decision was made in 2012. 
uh, during the London conference. So I feel like this whole federalism thing, it's, it's from outside outsiders, yes, but more so these Western powers and Ethiopia was utilized to assist with implementing it, you know? That's all it is. And Melis, the guy's a mercenary, you know, so he'll take advantage of it, you know, do it, you know, and he'll assist with implementing, implementing the so-called federalism to weaken Somalia. Because, it, I mean, I think a weak Somali is not just in America or Europe's benefits, it's also in Ethiopia's benefit. So, I mean, it's just simply not going to work. You know what I'm saying? It's a country with seven presidents and none of them control more than a few kilometers. It's simply not going to work. You know what I mean? This is why the insurgency is not dying out. You know what I mean? This is why the country is not sovereign. So many problems. You know what I mean? So, I mean, the only way to go over this is a central state. And everybody knows this. You know what I mean? But, I mean, yeah. the Somali narrative is not really told, you know? So, for in order to get over this, I kind of feel like Somalis, fam, they just, all these foreigners got to get out. You know, the U.S. mission, mm -hmm. the British mission the AU, EGAD, they just got to leave and let Somalis reconcile amongst themselves, address the past, mm -hmm. you know, address the grievances, go forward, move forward, and then just decide how you want to govern your nation. And 99% are going to say centralism because this is not going to work. You know what I mean? So that's how I look at it, to be honest. Yeah, you mentioned like all the nine presidents. Really, I mean, as an outside observer looking into Somali internal affair, you know, I, I can only comment, but observing the situation is uh, it's hard to, <laughs> to keep up with the different region, uh, Puntland or different president. It's just uh, different personalities and the, the federal system uh, it, uh, itself is very uh, challenging. I mean, it's, like you mentioned, it makes sense within Ethiopia because it's multinational, but Somalia is just one homogenous uh, state and the mm. federalism has doesn't really serve anything beyond weakening the Somali uh, na nationism. But uh, to just get back to the ICU, you mentioned, you know, um, the news of uh, their, their rise, the ICU. Um, and, you know, I just want to understand uh, your view of the ICU. Uh, apparently, when they took over Somalia or the certain section of Somalia, Mogadishu, uh, there was a lot of popular support um, for their efforts to crush these warlords who were causing a lot of havoc, uh, causing tension. Uh, but at the same time, people went to school. Uh, the ICU is uh, push, putting kids back to school. Um, yeah, you mentioned that they were under Sharia law, uh, which is something, you know, as an outside observer, I can't really comment on because that's something the Somalis have to decide whether they need this or not. This is, I'm just an outside observer, but they utilize this to unify Somalis uh, under a banner of, uh, you know, uh, resisting uh, Ethiopian invasion, which, which made sense. But I just want to understand, like, how do you, what was the, what was the ICU view on like banking or their, I think they were against like some smally business. Uh, they were, I guess they were not like uh, stopping them, but what was their view on social services and how do you view ICU role at that time? It was just like, it was playing like a state basically at the time, briefly. Yeah, I mean, I think the rise of the ICU in Somalia was probably the first instance of political Islam gaining a foothold in the African continent during the 9-11 mm -hmm. era, you know? And, you know, this in itself can be attributed to why the United States, you know, well, was so adamant on destroying the movement while it was still in its infancy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think more so Somalis, I mean, during that period in 2006, the war in Somalia was about going on for 15 years, you know, lawless warlords, mass murder, killings, rapes, all sorts of horrific atrocities unfolding in the countries. And the ICU were able to put an end to that, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. aside from Mogadishu, they took Mogadishu by force after defeating the warlords, but the rest of the country, I mean, the rest of the territory they took over, they took it without firing a single shot. That just shows you the public were very supportive of them. And within mm -hmm. that six-month period, I mean, fam, the country was peaceful. You could travel from one end to mm -hmm. another, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? You have Somali diaspora, you know, returning from the 
UK and Canada, you know what I mean? Opening the airport. Movie. So they represented something new, you know, but the problem is the United States has a very narrow view of Islam and political Islam and Sharia. You know what I mean? They always view it through a hostile lens, you know, because in reality, when you look at the world today, liberal democracy is not really compatible outside of the Western world. You know what I mean? If people in Somalia want Sharia law, respect their ambitions. If people in Latin America want socialism, respect their ambitions. They don't seem to understand that and they keep forcing their will on people, you know? And this is what happened in Somalia, you know? They weren't, they did not want the Islamic courts to, you know, fully solidify their power. They didn't want that because they have a narrow view of Islam and uh, governance and how they view things. So in reality, it cultivated into a full-blown invasion, you know? So, mm-hmm. and that, that that's how I would say, I mean, it was a deep misunderstanding, but even though they had so much respect and support from the public, that's why if you ask Somalis, the average Somali will tell you that was the golden era, you know, over the last 30 mm-hmm. years of war, that six month period is known as the golden era. If you go to the, what's it called, the Chapman House, uh, was it, I think university or college in London, they have a specific section where they talk about Somali and they'll, in, in their archive, it states that that six month period under the ICU was Somalia's golden era, you know? Because it really mm-hmm. was, and but you know Washington had other plans for the region, you know. So I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's reality. Yeah, and then I think Bella Zanawi and the TPLF exploited the uh, war on terror effort to demonize this effort. Where you know, as outside observers, uh, we cannot really judge the uh, internal local way of solving contradiction, whether it's Sharia law or the situation in Iran, or if the religion is used in a good way to bring uh, you know st- strength in nationalism uh, or you unify the working class struggle or anything like that, that is up to the people on the ground. Uh, you know, I really can't judge from the outside, but this is something that the Somali people feel this is a need and that's a way to solve the contradiction. You know, that's something that's, that's their choice. But it seemed like the TPLF and the Amela Zanawi calculately used that uh, anti-Islam uh, you know, uh, forever that was happening during the uh, 2000s, you know, war on terror perfectly and they executed very well, uh, you know, after 2005. And it seemed like the invasion of uh, Somalia came at a time when Somalia was, um, Melissa now he's feeling the pressure from the uh, Washington and different elements, neoliberal elements that were trying, you know, the election of 2005. Uh, I think the Washington was trying to do some different uh, push to um, get him out of power. Uh, and then the invasion of Somalia saved him actually to get him in uh, favor, uh, even though when the Ethiopian troops under their direction invaded Somalia and uh, ICU made them bleed, um, the resistance of the Somali inside uh, uh, against these uh, invasion by back Washington was uh, tremendous uh, in making these troops who were there causing havoc, causing war crime. Uh, you know, the resistance to Somalia uh, was key, but the, it's de-emphasized because there is a war on terror. So anybody that fights the Ethiopian invasion is looked at as supporting terrorism, which is really uh, dishonest. But um, how do you make the distinction between the, you know, advancement of ICU and its effort to unify Somalis versus Al-Shabaab, which is, uh, uh, you know, Somalis looked at them very um, differently compared the ICU, uh, they view them as a little extreme and, you know, uh, targeting other Muslims. And these are the criticism I'm just sharing with you. That's how their view Al-Shabaab, you know, as somebody that's like uh, not doing uh, good for the, you know, the progress of Somalia. Uh, But how do you make that distinction between the ICU uh, and the political Islam that can unify uh, Somalis, um, bring about a stable state versus the Al-Shabaab, who are, to my understanding, are very connected to external entities and uh, Western intelligence. Intelligence are pretty much penetrated, but how do you view these distinctions? 
Yeah, I mean, the ICU, I mean, you have to look at the ICU, why Somali supported the ICU, but not a Shabab. I think it's pretty, I mean, from a Somali perspective, the ICU is a genuine and grassroots, you know, Islamic movement because mm-hmm. Somalis are 100% Muslim. Somalis are a society that where religion will surpass ethnicity or even tribalism in a way, you know, they, that, that's how they are. So when the ICU came on the scene, they, they, they weren't really so much about clanism or tribalism. They weren't about mm-hmm. regionalism or, you know, anything like that. They put, uh, religion first and then they used this as a guard as a guard to unite Somalis and that's why they were so popular in the eyes of Somalis and I think during that period of the ICU was like Somalia's version of the Arab Spring you know I'm not sure mm-hmm. what your views are on the Arab Spring but I give that comparison because it was actually a moment in history where Somalis rose up and were trying to decide the fate of their nation you know mm-hmm. but in regards to Al-Shabaab uh, to be honest I mean Al-Shabaab then and now is different because if you look at that, because they always existed, they were a youth wing of the ICU, you know, where they yeah. had about several hundred fighters, you know, and several hundred, several, several hundred fighters is very insignificant, you know, but once that invasion took place, it empowered them, you know what I mean? And once the Ethiopian troops left Somalia in 2009, Al-Shabaab took over to half the country. I mean, they took over southern and central Somalia, which is an area the size of the UK. So you can imagine going from a fighting force of 700 to having enough men to take over an area the size of the UK. Hey, that invasion empowered them. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. Al-Shabaab's rise to power can be attributed to failed U.S. foreign policy. But what turned Somalis against them? Because at first they were a resistance against the Ethiopians in the U.S. And then later, 2009, 2010, it was more factional infighting where they were fighting other factions in the country and trying to overthrow the weak transitional government in the capital, Mogadishu, and things like that. But mm-hmm. as time progressed, they started getting more brutal. This is what turned the public against them. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't place Somalis on religion. Somalis know what Islam is and blowing up civilians in a market or on a school bus is not Islam you know what I mean and this Mm -hmm. is why the public turned against Al-Shabaab you know don't get me wrong everybody is scared of them everybody fears them but that doesn't mean Somalis have support and this is what I hate about these western analysts you know what I mean when you go online and read the material they publish they say Al-Shabaab is still powerful in Somalia over the public this and that it's really not like that, you know what I mean? It's not that, you know, it's not really that easy as they put it, you know, because what Al-Shabaab does is they have power and fear, you know, mm-hmm. that they implement over the public. It's not really support as, as we witnessed with the ICU, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what it is. So, yeah, that's how I look at the difference. And that's why Somalis don't overall, Somalis don't support them, you know? Do you feel there will be another round of something similar to ICU that can unify the state? Or or another question is maybe, you know, we saw the events in the, with the Taliban. Uh, I'm not saying it's the same comparison but uh you know the, the resistance of the taliban inside afghanistan um you know they were blowing up some uh, civilian areas and you know causing issues uh but how do you feel at some point there needs to be a political engagement you know that's the the Eritrean uh, state position of there needs to be a political solution not a military solution and that's why the Eritrean state it was the only one that pretty much opposed the invasion of somalia by uh, uh the melissanawi and the tplf and and it got sanctioned for it but uh how do you feel is a political question, a political solution to the question of Al-Shabaab, the issue of, you know, centralized, or do you feel there needs to be a reconciliation with people who are grabbed by the Al-Shabaab uh, current? Yeah, uh, 
I mean, regarding your first question, it will another movement similar to the ICU rise up. Uh, I think, I mean, the ICU no longer exists. You know, most of the leadership that Somali supported in that organization, I mean, a lot of them passed away. A lot of them switched sides. A lot of them went extreme. A lot, you know, so that organization is debunked. But uh, for a movement like that, I think it's possible because I think Somalis are at a point today where, I mean, I think more people are towards Islamic law. You know what I mean? And this is something I've noticed when I read other I read about other you know conflict zones in the Muslim world is like the more you you prop up you know un, you know secular rulers brutal dictators the more you back foreign interventions is in Muslim countries this will often <coughs> excuse me this will oftentimes push people closer to Sharia and this is what Somalis are because I mean over the last thirty years the only time Somalis experienced peace was under the ICU you know what I mean billions mm-hmm. of dollars are spent on this UN backed government and it has nothing to show for it you know what I mean so I do believe a movement like that will come but how will it come and when will it come is the question you know mm-hmm. and uh, regarding the shabab and uh, should there be like peace talks as with the taliban i'm kind of 50 50 on that to be honest because i mean there's a lot of similarities between somalia and afghanistan but the dynamics surrounding the insurgency in both countries are very different you know one, mm-hmm. if you look at Afghanistan, the Taliban had a lot of diplomatic connections, you know, diplomatic relations they had with Qatar, with Iran, Pakistan, China, and even Russia. Al-Shabaab, as of, as of right now, doesn't have diplomatic connections with anybody. You know what I mean? And furthermore, uh, I would say it's about legitimacy. You know what I mean? Al-Shabaab, I mean, because the Taliban, I mean, they have done brutality themselves, but for the most part, their war was against the U.S. and the NATO-led coalition. Al-Shabaab, on the other hand, they target civilians indiscriminately, you know? If they simply focused on uh, just targeting the foreign troops in the Somali army, then the public would have looked at them like, oh, these are actually rebels, guerrilla fighters, you know what I'm saying? But that's mm-hmm. not the case. Once they turn set their eyes on civilians, it's like, damn, you know, this is just like people are just, you know, it just turns the public away from them. So, I mean, it's good, I think, to sit down at the table and ask what they want. But at the same time, they're not on the same level as the Taliban. You have to remember that, you know what I mean? This is a movement. I mean, if you go online, estimates put their fighting force around five to 10k you know i think it's more than that you know what i mean but i i still i don't know part of me says no we shouldn't engage in peace talks with them but a part of me says yes give it a try because it's just hard to say because i mean i want the war in somalia to end but at the same time i don't want to give legitimacy to al-shabaab you know so that's Mm -hmm. how i would look at it that makes sense uh before we move on to you know the latest development with ethiopia and you know the, the huge uh social media campaign uh no more how what is the small view of no more uh you know it seemed like uh, from my perspective and observation there are some Somali voices who are nationalists who uh, are engaging in the social media campaign but uh, as we've seen it is not a uh it is more of expressializing ethiopia and there's a lot of baggage with no more i mean there you we can see that their criticism about foreign policy and, and all that, but it seemed like there is a baggage about like centralizing Ethiopia into the conversation or, you know, instead of making it an overall criticism about foreign policy and the Horn of Africa. But what's your view on uh, No More in comparison to, uh, you know, um, I understand that you have a different view of, uh, for Omanju uh, and the, the government, which is fine. Uh, uh, I'm not pro or anti, but I'm just an observer. Just looking at the situation, it seemed like the No More campaign is supported by the Varanju supporters uh, uh, who are in line uh, because, you know, uh, Abby and Esaias are in line uh, in this uh, alliance right now. But what's your view on the social media campaign that uh, emphasizes uh, Ethiopia right now 
when both Eritrea and Ethiopia, I mean, Eritrea and Somalia were under sanction, destabilized for 18 years. And we didn't get really you know a leftist uh, international focus, uh, even though there was a few voices. But it seemed like there's an inconsistency of overemphasizing Ethiopia when it's uh, invaded or uh, there's aggression, but we don't get the attention. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think the No More campaign, you know what I mean? It's, it's getting a lot of publicity online, on television. But I feel like it's probably one of the most misleading, you know what I mean, campaigns I've ever seen, you know, because to portray Ethiopia as a victim, the only people who portray Ethiopia as a victim of imperialism are those who don't really know the history of Ethiopia or the wider Horn of Africa. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, in my, at least in my view, Ethiopia today is no different than Ethiopia under Meles, under the Derg, under Haile Selassie. It is an imperial state and it will remain so, you know? So I kind of feel like, I don't know, because I mean, there's a lot of, it's probably particularly because Ethiopia. I don't know, for some reason, I noticed a lot of Pan-Africans have like deep ties and deep support for Ethiopia because there's always this fake notion and this fake narrative that's, you know, paraded about Ethiopia regarding it was never colonized. It represents African unity when that's simply not the case. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like it's very misleading and it's unfortunate because those who are supporting the No More campaign and Abiy's government don't realize that this is paving the way for the former imperial order to return to Ethiopia. You know, that central structure to return, which, you know, uh, wipes out the regional autonomy for a lot of these marginalized communities, you know, that are fighting for self-determination. And if you're a real leftist and you really anti-Marxist and all of that, you will support every community's right to self-determination, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions regarding the No More campaign. In regards to why uh, Somalia and Eritrea didn't get the same support over the last 18 years, two decades pretty much, uh, I would say, to be honest, fam, it's like, I think Somalia and Eritrea did get support, you know, when they were, uh, what's it called, being targeted by the West, you know, but when they're targeted by Ethiopia, they don't get the same support because I think they're, that's, it's for a number of reasons. Because number one, like I said, there's a misconception. Everybody, a lot of these, you know, Pan-Africans and these anti-imperialists that are not from the Horn view Ethiopia as some sort of light in the darkness. Like they view Ethiopia as a, you know, as an anti-imperial country, as a nation, you know, Bob Marley made music about it, this and that, you know what I mean? That's why I think Ethiopia's aggression is not really over towards Eritrea and Somalia over the last 20 years hasn't been taken up by the left, you know? Mm -hmm. But when the West comes in and sanctions Eritrea or invades Somalia, yes, they're quick to jump on it. But when their proxy Ethiopia is doing the dirty works as seen with that invasion of Eritrea in 98 or that invasion of Somalia several years later in 2006, it's just not giving the same effort, you know? So I just feel like there's a lot of ignorance spewed uh, spewed behind all of this. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I just want to talk about, um, I think uh, you had an interesting thread focusing on the month of December. Uh, there was a couple of anniversary, you know, we noted that the invasion of Somalia uh, by the uh, Ethiopian regime under the TPLF in 2006 or 2007 occurred in uh, December, um, I believe. And then there was another anniversary about an internal massacre uh, within the Somalia region um, involving the TPLF uh, supported OPDO and different uh, military and different personalities. And then at that time, I remember the incident, it actually, this was an effort by the TPLF and different external entity to cause friction between the Somalis, the two sisterly brotherly uh, neighbors who uh, have a lot in common to cause tension and hatred, uh, who I don't know who and what uh, ordered the military or the attacks on the Somali area. But um, I, I believe, uh, you know, there was calm 
effort uh, by the Somali and Oromo uh, nationalists to calm this issue in a way that isn't like cause tension. But can you walk us through what happened exactly to the events of uh, in December and that was historic inside Somalia region? Uh, and also, what can what is ways to unify the Oromos and Somalis together in a in a struggle in the south or some type of block in the south inside Ethiopia? Or what's your view on that? All right, uh, and I believe your question is in reference to the incident that took place on the 15th of December, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, that actually didn't take place in the Somali region. It took place in a town called Bilbileti in the okay. West Halarge region of the Oromo Regional State. Okay. Uh, what occurred that day is that uh, there, there was a large Somali population that resided in that town for a very long time. And I, I know we read the threat, so I don't want to go into detail from beginning to end. But to cut it down is what occurred is that on that day, the OPDO and uh, OPDO-sponsored paramilitary groups and militias attacked that town and slaughtered the Somalis, you know, or killing mm-hmm. over 600 of them, you know. And just for being Somali, you know, and I understand there was that artificial border war that was taking place at the time where the TPLF was using Abdiile and the OPDO to go at it. You know what I mean? Just to mm-hmm. instigate communal violence between the community. But what I just don't like is that, you know, these people, over 600 Somalis are massacred in Belbileti. Why not just go after, you know what I mean? Uh, the Liu Somali Liu police or things of that nature, because I mean, it's 600 Somalis were killed, you know, and then it, it doesn't get the same coverage as let's per se, Aksum. The Aksum uh, incident in Tigray, around 600 people were killed. You see amnesty, you see human rights, like they're going off, you know what I mean? But when 600 Somalis are killed in the same manner, it doesn't get that same publicity, you know? So that that's just where it hits a nerve with me, you know what I mean? And then what followed that December uh, 2017 incident was the following year, uh, 2018. What you had during that period was over 1 million Somalis were displaced, you know, violently displaced by OPDO militias, you know? Those 1 million Somalis that were displaced is the reason why Somalis account for 50% of the IDPs in Ethiopia today, despite only making up 10% of the total population of the country. You understand? So what occurred during that period can be, uh, and how I characterize it as like a, it was a well-orchestrated ethnic cleansing campaign that unfolded in 2018 because the OPDO prior to PP, it was the OPDO that was mm-hmm. leading the federal government, you know? And this can be attributed to why so many atrocities were traded against Somalis, you know, in that region. And to be honest, I don't blame Oromos. I do blame the leadership of the Oromo regional state for carrying out these atrocities. And I do blame even individuals like Abdi Ile, who's incarcerated for attacking innocent civilians in the border and starting the violence on behalf of TPLF, you know. So this is a multi-phase and a very complex situation, you know. But in reality, I think to end it off, I would say the only way to move forward is just reconciliation, you know. Somalis and Oromos are, you know, they share a border, they share history, culture, you know what I mean? They share a long history of anti-Abyssinian imperialism, you know what I mean? So the only, and I don't think that should just be all of that history and solidarity should be thrown under the bus over a bad couple years of violence, which were instigated by non, you know, Cushitic people, is what I'm trying to say. So I I, I do think these people, because I mean, they do, I mean, both communities have different interests, they have different views of history, you know, but at the same time, they share a more in common, you know what I mean? And and when you look at the current threat in Ethiopia and the, you know what I'm saying, from PP and the Abyssinian camp and all of that, they face the same amount of threats, you know, so in the long run, despite the differences, I do believe the communities will come together, you know, and just yeah. work something out and just move forward, because I mean, it's in the best interest of both communities at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I think uh, I was just concerned about the, you know, efforts to cause division within 
the Somali and Oromos, even the Southern population, there's always an effort to cause tension in the South. And, you know, there was, um, I believe there was an attempt to have like a Southern Bloc political party, uh, OLF, ONLF, and different entities within Somali region of Oromos, which is really a nice move and a smart move to be independent of the Abyssinians at the North and the political bloc. Uh, you don't need the TPLF. You don't need the other entities. You can create an independent bloc, a powerful political movement that can unify the Southern population. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of commonalities in the South, but uh, I'm glad that you're, you have that perspective, uh, you know, despite the tragedy of December uh, of this month and, uh, you know, c- counting the anniversary and the massacre of uh, um uh, Oromos, I mean, the Somalis by, uh, OBDO, which were, you know, a, uh, an entity that was created by Melissa Nawi and the TPLF during the nineties and gave birth to, you know, neutralizing the OLF. So all this is just an effort to divide and, uh, and conquer the Somali and Oromos or weaken their, uh, efforts to unify and reconcile. But, um, Muhammad, uh, really appreciate your analysis. It was really great. Uh, it was on point and yeah, I look forward to having you on in the future, but, uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Uh, no, I want to thank you, Fulman, for giving me the opportunity to actually come on your platform and just discuss things from a Somali perspective, you know. So I'm looking forward, you know, for you know, more things like this in the future. But I would like once again thank you. Okay, thank you, Mohammed. Uh-huh.